Hello, welcome back to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. This week we are taking inspiration from all the classical art around us and talking about sculpture. I have to say that being in Greece has really increased my appreciation for sculpture. We just spent a day in Delphi and there was some amazing sculpture, including a sphinx. Also, we got to visit Friends Antinos, where there is a marble museum in a strong sculpting tradition. And so we are going to be talking about the science behind two popular sculpture mediums, marble and bronze. And since it's two completely different topics, there's no possible way you can steal my thunder today, I think. No way. I'm not going to steal anybody's thunder. All right. We'll see. Well, I'll let you go first. So bronze sculpture occurring from 3300 BCE to 1200 BCE, and it's a bronze Wait, so they don't age. do bronze sculpture anymore? You know, there's still plenty of bronze uh, casting. Mm. So we don't really sculpt bronze yeah. the way you think of sculpting marble, where mm. you like chip away. Mm-hmm. But what you do instead is you cast it. So you make a wax impression, and then you coat the wax in clay. Mm-hmm. And you fire the clay like you would ceramic pottery. And that what happens is when you're firing that clay, all the wax melts off. melts off. And now you've got something that you could pour bronze into to create your statuary. Hmm. So that's essentially the the quick overview of how to make bronze sculpture. There's so much that went behind this that was very exciting. Like, for example, the fact that there was a bronze collapse or a beginning of the Greek Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. which is a controversial topic in the world of archaeology. Oh, I love a good controversy. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that. Back to the Bronze Age. Back to the Bronze Age. Essentially, bronze was the first combination or um, first metal that was created um, from a combination of metals. So it's the first alloy in the ancient world. In the old days, you could mine iron ore, which was ignored because mm-hmm. there really wasn't a way to do anything with it at that time Mm -hmm. and you could uh, mine copper and Mm -hmm. and tin Mm -hmm. now copper and tin were both reasonably malleable and easy to work yes and their uh, melting points were about 500 degrees fahrenheit for tin and then the copper about 2000 degrees fahrenheit Hmm. now both of those were within the capabilities of a neolithic pottery kiln okay And those kilns uh, started springing up around 6,000 BCE. Wow. So the abilities to get an enormous amount of heat Mm -hmm. weren't too far away from the melting points of copper and tin. The concentration was important. And what was discovered eventually through trial and error was that a 90-10, which is sort of a classic alloy of bronze, 90% copper and 10% tin. Gotcha the two melting points um, Mm -hmm. start to shift. And with that, the alloy's properties change. So the alloy may be harder to use, Mm. or it may exhibit more properties of of the tin than the copper, Mm. or it may even oxidize differently. And so because of that, Mm -hmm. what we find is that there's a sweet spot where the melting point is at its lowest. Yeah. Generally, when you have um, an alloy composed of two metals. So that um, sweet spot also gives uh, bronze another interesting capability, and that is it expands slightly just as it sets. Mm -hmm. And so if you're molding, that's great, because what that means is the the subsequent cooling of that mold will pull the bronze away from the plaster cast or the ceramic cast that you've used. 
on the exterior surface, the part that is broken off and removed uh, in the final work. So that makes it easier to separate and, and easier to make your final result. A lot of bronze models were on display at the Museum in Delphi. Not a lot. A well, few because most of the bronze had been destroyed at some point throughout the history of uh, the site. Well, a lot of it was melted down to make yeah. other things with. Now, we did see a lot of small bronze yes. implements. Yes. That, that's what I was trying to say. Oh. The bigger bronze statues, yes. You don't see a lot of big bronze mm-hmm. statues. And the Greeks were actually surprising in, in their um, early interest in making full-size bronze statuary. But those statues were very, very quickly found to be useful for making swords, axes, <laughs> and farming implements, which is what people really needed. And I think, personally, I do believe there was a Greek Dark Ages that was caused by the collapse of the Bronze Age. Mm. And that would have been a time where you would have seen a sacking of, of these old castles mm. and the removal of anything of metal that could be easily repurposed mm-hmm. for something else. Bronze is easy to melt back down into into its alloy form yeah. and pour it into something else. One of the things that we discover is other civilizations, not just the Greeks, also were quite involved in doing bronze statues, and that the first bronze statues were in the um, Harapen civilization. A dancing girl mm-hmm. is is the first known statue. The Mohenjo-Daro, and it dates back to 2500 BCE. It's the, probably the first known bronze statue. Hmm. And we'll have a photo of that. Um, it's actually dancing girls right there. Mm-hmm. The Greeks did a lot of war and statues of all sizes using the lost wax casting technique, hmm. which is what we just discussed. The, there are just a few examples of life-size statues that we can see to this day, one of which is the seawater-preserved bronze Victorious Youth. Hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful large statue. And then the other at the Delphi Museum, the Charrier Tear. Yes. Which which I thought was very interesting. The only reason it was preserved is that it was buried in an earthquake. Yeah. And no one was able to find it. Yes. Otherwise, it would have been melted down. Yes. So not the whole thing, just the charioteer, not the chariot or the horses. Yeah. Yeah. Those parts were found, I yeah. imagine, and, and used for something else. Yeah. There were a lot of ritual art ritual vessels covered with complex decoration mm. found as well. Those tapes, same type of vessels in Egyptian tombs, mm-hmm. and an enormous amount of lost wax bronze figurines. In the 7th and 8th centuries, Sri Lankan Sinhalese bronze statue of the Buddhist Hera, which is now in the British Museum, <laughs> of course it is. It's an excellent example of, of, of the Sri Lankan bronze oh, statue. Dear. The British Museum. From the 9th through the 20th, 13th century, the Chola dynasty in South India represented the pinnacle of bronze casting in India. It's really interesting to see the technology either be independently discovered around the world or spread around the world. Yeah. I have a deal. I've, I've a suspicion it was spread just based on the amount of economic and cultural cultural exchange that was happening at the time. But um, it would be interesting to know if some of it was independently discovered. People were really geology minded back yeah. in the day. You know, they were. Well, doing they had to like find things that would be useful for them. Yeah, and, and you think about all the different types of stones that Neolithic. Uh, period mm-hmm. was using as a method for breaking up the dirt yeah. and planting crops. How great was it when they discovered that they could melt two different metals and create a stronger metal from the result? Mm-hmm. And from that, 
be able to make a, a plow that you could pull behind animals. Yeah. Any other tools of that day could not be pulled behind animals because the instant you hit something hard, like they, another rock in the dirt, they would you shatter. would shatter. Yeah. And, and bronze comes and all of a sudden you have something that doesn't and shatter. It's, and it's also malleable that you can mold it into different shapes. But strong enough that it will still retain its yes. shape under normal use. One of the things that we find is the Mycenaean period, and this is the uh, Mycenaean civilization in Crete, mm. was a major contributor to a lot of bronze statuary and a lot of the Bronze Age technology of the time. Mm -hmm. There is thought that a major earthquake contributed to the collapse of the Bronze Age in that era, and the earthquake was the explosion of the Thera volcano on Santorini. Oh. And it would have sent an enormous tsunami that yeah. would have created a, a massive amount of destruction mm -hmm. on the island of Crete. Mm -hmm. But along with that was also the transfer now of the technology from bronze to iron working. Because mm -hmm. by the time of about 1200, we see that bronze is definitely reducing in its availability. Economies are collapsing around Greece, not all at the same time. Right. And there is a massive exodus from major civilization centers, except for Athens. Let's be, you know, to remind our listeners that at the time, Greece was not a whole country. It yeah. was a bunch of city-states that rose and fell in prominence, often due to economic factors, such as the you know, unavailability of copper yeah. or geological catastrophe, or them just fighting and taking over each other. But just to give you a, a bit of context on the age, the Parthenon was built in 447 BCE. Mm. The bronze collapse that occurred and another essentially 600 or so, 600, 700 years passes after that period to where we get to the um, golden age of Athenian democracy and Athenian building and, and letters. And, and also and marble, and which is where you're going. <laughs> okay. No, do you have something else you want to say? No, that, that was really about it. But I was, the only other thing I was going to say is that the language, the alphabet changes from linear B mm. to the new alphabet that we know today as ancient Greek. Oh, that's very interesting. I have to read more about Greek history. Yeah, I, I think what was more interesting about learning about bronze was Greek history <laughs> and the process of the Bronze Age um, rise and collapse. Yeah. And so similarly, I'm going to talk a lot about marble sculpture in Greece. And this is not to exclude all of the wonderful and beautiful marble sculpture that can be found around the world. Uh, it's just that since we are here, we are exposed to it quite a bit. So marble has been used since ancient times for sculpture, particularly for sculptures of the human form. Do you know why? Because it was easy to sculpt? Not necessarily. I mean, that's part of it. But yeah. it's used for human's forms because it is somewhat translucent. So it has the ability to absorb light a small distance into the surface before refracting it, and this gives a soft appearance that can represent human skin. Oh, wow. And that can be polished very nicely. Pure white marble is most popular for sculpture, with colored marble being popular for architectural design and decoration. Parian marble from the Greek island of Paros is famous for its use in the Venus de Milo and many other ancient Greek sculptures, such as Winged Victory or Nike of Samothrace. Both of which I think are in the Louvre. And Parian marble is fine-grained, semi-translucent, pure white, and flawless marble. Its main rival in antiquity was Pentelic marble, which is also flawless white, but has a faint yellow tint that makes it shine gold under the sunlight. This is due to the quartz in the marble as an accessory mineral. This type of marble was used most notably for the Acropolis and comes from Mount 
Pentelicus, just outside of Athens. The quarry, the ancient quarry there, is still used, but only for Acropolis restoration projects. I I guess that explains the general color, because when you look at the Acropolis, you think it should be white, but no, it has a bit of a goldish kind of tint to it. If they'd used Parian marble, it would have been stark. But it's also aged, and so it was probably whiter back when it was originally built. So Michelangelo and other Renaissance sculptors in Italy used used Carrera marble from northern Italy, uh, though this marble has since run out, no longer available. So why would you use marble in sculptures? We've already discussed its slight translucency. Some types of marble are relatively soft when they're first quarried, so they're easy to work with. Marble is weather-resistant, except for acid rain and seawater, but most of the time, as we can see from all these sculptures hanging around Greece, it tends to last. The fineness of the grain in marble makes means that finer detail can be sculpted into the marble than into, say, limestone, which okay. is where marble comes from. Mm-hmm. And one more bit of marble history. The island of Tinos here in Greece has a long history of marble sculpture. The legend is that the Tiniats, it's Tiniats, not Tinians, I mm. found out, were taught how to sculpt by Phidias, whose ship was forced to Tinos by strong winds when he was sailing to Delos. So Phidias, or Phidias, is a sculptor, painter, and architect, and his statue of Zeus at Olympia was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The marble on Tinos is dove white or dark verde green, and it was Tinian artists that created the art form as a staple for cyclotic art. So all the cyclotic sculpture that you see around really originated from Tinos. The art was further honed during the Venetian control of the islands between, I think it's supposed to be 1217 and 1750, but I have 2017 here, which is why I'm pausing, and that's clearly not right. Yeah, 1217. (laughs) I would say it's 1217. And after the Ottoman occupation, where the Tiniots were still free to ply their trade as they saw fit, because the Ottomans didn't fully control Tinos as an island, Tinian artists helped create beautiful classic pieces for the new capital in Athens. Yes. The Greek independence. And to this day, there's um, a lovely marble museum there. There is, yes. And then there's Pyrgos, which is a town that is really dedicated to the art of marble sculpting. Yeah, yeah. If you're into a marble, Pyrgos is just beautiful. It's also just beautiful in general. Yeah, yeah. I kind of want to go back. Yeah, it has a really good pizza place. (laughs) That's why Dino wants to go back. (laughs) So what is marble, Demos? Do you know what marble is? So it's a type of limestone? Mm, sort Fine of. green limestone. No, I wouldn't mm, I wouldn't say. It's its own thing. So according to the University of Auckland in New Zealand, marble is a metamorphic rock formed when limestone is exposed to high temperature and pressures. Do you know what metamorphic rocks are? Uh, yes, uh, rocks that are exposed to high temperatures and pressures. Well, rocks that are formed when other rocks are subjected to high heat, high pressure, high mineral-rich fluids, or a comb- combination of the three. So limestone is made up of fossil fragments held together with calcite, which is the most common form of natural calcium carbonate. And the high heat and pressure recrystallizes the calcite into denser rock with equigranular calcite crystals. That was a mouthful. Equigranular calcite. Calcite crystals. (laughs) Can't do it. Equigranular means that it's (laughs) consisting of minerals of approximately the same size. There are usually occlusions. Do you remember what occlusions are from our jewelry episodes? Yes, tiny little defects in in the structure. Yeah, there's tiny occlusions in marble that can make it different colors. So those colors arise from minerals, micas, quartz, pyrite, iron oxides, and graphite. So example is that iron makes pink marble. So an interesting fact about the process that makes marble is that the calcite crystals in limestone are very small. As the metamorphosis process progresses, the crystals grow larger and start forming the interlocking crystal structure of calcite. 
This recrystallization process obscures the original fossils in sedimentary structures of the limestone. With the process, clay minerals in the marble will become mica and more complex silicate structures. Some might also contribute to the formation of gem minerals, which is why you can find gems such as rubies and sapphires in marble veins. Oh, wow. That's exciting. I know. Just bring it full circle all the way back to last season. I yes. Love it. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting when you said about iron turning marble pink, you know, iron in glass turns glass red. We'll, so. we'll get to that. I think two or three episodes from now is our glass blowing one. Okay, great. But if you're excited, we can always rearrange. I'm always excited about that. So here's some cool science behind marble. In 2020, Andrea Timogini et al. published research in the Science of the Total Environment journal looking at the bacterial communities in outdoor bronze and marble sculptures. So they wanted to understand what were the bacterial communities there, if they differed by material, and if those communities impacted the relative aging of the statues. So they sampled bronze and marble statues in Bologna and Ravenna, Italy, and predictably, significant differences were seen between the bacterial communities on the different materials. So marble had a high biodiversity with cyanobacteria, proteobacteria, and Deinococcus thermus species. The bronze patinas, which are the outer layer of the bronze... Kind of like the thing that makes it look green or something like that. It is, Yes. Uh, showed lower taxa diversity dominated by copper-resistant proteobacteria. And this is because copper is widely known as an antimicrobial. Mm. So you're not going to get as many things growing on it. And this is seen in green marble as well. So green marble has copper in it, so you won't see as much bacteria on it. So the formal definition of a patina, because I know you like to use this word a lot. Oh, yeah. Is the green film formed naturally on copper and bronze by long exposure. Or the surface appearance of something grown beautiful with age or use. Ah, like the patina on my face. Yes, exactly like that. Although you might just need to wash your face. So the, this group is going to do further research to study the impact of the microbes on the stone and on the bronze to see how they impact the aging process. I wonder if you could lick bronze or marble. Like, would you get beneficial bacteria from this? Probably not. So... Couple reasons. We don't exactly know um, if those particular species are beneficial for humans, mm. right? Just because they can grow on, like, if you if you want an antimicrobial, you're saying you should lick the copper. Yeah, don't lick anything that's antimicrobial. Well, just don't lick anything that's outside for a while because you're probably going to do more harm than good. Yeah. And secondly, um, if you are a relatively healthy person and your gut microbiome is then relatively healthy. Disturbing that is actually, in a beneficial way, is actually very tricky. So it's easy to introduce a bad bacteria and give yourself food poisoning. But it is not very easy to open up a niche in your microbiome for something new to grow in there that Mm. would be good for you. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that probiotic pills basically don't really work. So lastly, I thought what I thought was interesting and something I hadn't thought of at all is what to do with all the extra marble from the quarrying process. Yeah. Like, so it's actually been termed environmental waste, and it really? could be sort of detrimental to their surroundings. Just like the marble dust? The dust and the little pieces and, you know, mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. So a review published in 2019 in the Journal of Environmental Management suggested using marble waste in concrete. Hmm. So marble improved the mechanical properties and strength of the concrete, and it's used instead of aggregate, and the optimum rate of marble was 10% of the concrete mix. I also think it would look good. Wouldn't yeah, like, I think like patio stones look great. Yeah. Some marble in there. Yeah, 
I mean, they crushed up really finely, so I don't know how much contribution yeah, it would actually make to the color. Yeah. <laughs> but I just thought it was an interesting way to think about not only reusing marble, but also getting at some of the environmental costs of making concrete. All right, so I have a glossary. Okay, let's see it. All right, metamorphic rock. Okay. Well, I, I was looking over your shoulder, and it, <laughs> but I think it was essentially the, the high temperature and pressure that uh, is used to form the standard sedimentary rock. High temperature and pressure acting on sedimentary rock to make a new rock. Okay. You keep missing the new rock part of it. It's okay. very important. It makes a new rock. Okay. I've always been a fan of old rock. We, might, we have to think about your Greek. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. A transformation. Transformation into something new. So calcite? Uh, calcite, that is, um, I think, a calcium-containing uh, mineral. Yeah, the most abundant natural form of calcium carbonate. Epigranular. Something that has, oh, I don't know, I don't get, I don't know that. Made one. of minerals of almost the same size. Oh. Epi gosh. equal granular oh, grains. Oh, gosh. Demo, your Greek is failing you here. Oh, it is, it is. <laughs> okay. More coffee. <laughs> patinas. Uh, patina is a, a coating or a, um, a surface um, appearance based on a covering or um, age. Yeah, surface of something grown beautiful with age or use. Or okay. the green that you see with bronze. Oh, so if you're cover. calling it a patina, it automatically assumes it's a be- thing of yes. beauty. Yes, yes. Okay. At least the definition I found. All right, fun facts. What kind of marble was the Venus de Milo made of? Oh, my goodness. Pandelic marble. No, Parian. Oh, goodness. Pandelic marble is for the Acropolis. Okay. How are rubies related to marble? Uh, they can be found inside of marble veins. Mm-hmm. And elements in the marble can contribute to the ruby formation. Cool. And what metals can be used to make bronze? Oh, that's easy. Copper and tin. Any other metals? Can you do it with another metal? Nope. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Luxi. Please tell at least two people about this podcast. That is the best way to help us get noticed and find new listeners. A special thanks, as always, to my audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. Check out our social media for pictures of the Marble Museum in Tinos and sculptures from around Greece. We're all over at social media at Luxi Pod.